A few years ago, my parents were moving from the house they had inhabited for over 30 years. That's a job, right? Some of you know that firsthand. My mother said to me, Amy, if you want the cedar chest, we will bring it to you now. And I did want the cedar chest. I knew that it was a piece of furniture that had been handed down from my grandmother to my mother, and I knew it had treasures of my family history inside of it. It had been a very long time since I had seen my mother open the cedar chest, but I knew that it had parts of my family legacy that I wanted to keep. So my parents drove up from Wichita and brought the cedar chest to our house in Kansas City. And my dad said, you know, Amy, the lock is a little jammed up. Uh, and when I tried to open it, I couldn't open it. And he said, it's nothing that a screwdriver and some WD-40 won't fix. <laughs> but I was not in any rush to get it open. That was five years ago. <laughs> so this past August, just a few months ago, my parents came up here to visit, and I declared, when you get here, we are going to open the cedar chest. And in fact, it only took a little WD-40. That's what the lock needed. And we got it open, and my mother and I spent a few hours pulling things out of the chest, looking them over, and talking about from what they came. We found lots of great pictures, which I made her label with everyone's name on them. We found baby blankets that my grandmother, my grandmother had knitted before her dementia got too bad in hopes that there would be great grandbabies one day to use them. Sorry about that, Grandma. <laughs> and toward the end, when we lifted up one of those Afghans, we saw there in the bottom of the chest a shoebox. Now, my mother got really excited. She said, I didn't know that was in here. Is that what I think it is? I had no idea it was there. I, I had wondered where that went. She told me that this was the very same shoebox that had always sat in the hall closet of her family home growing up, sat up on the shelf among the hats and the gloves. And in it was all the mementos from my grandfather, everything that he had from his childhood and the days before he married fit in this box. He didn't have much but he carefully kept it in this shoebox, which eventually found its way into the cedar chest and then into my house. Now, my grandfather Salter died in 1984 when I was seven years old. So I have some memories of him, but not many. He's been gone a long time. And so having this box, it, it actually makes him feel real to me as just about anything else. The box isn't even full, actually. But I know that what was in here was really important to him. His high school letter is in here, uh, a program from his high school graduation in 1924. There's some photos of him, including some of him with classmates from his pharmacy school days in Wichita. And then there is this little pocket New Testament. This is my favorite thing in the box, no surprise. It's, which means it was given to my grandfather August 18, 1915. Which means it was given to my grandfather when he was in fifth or sixth grade. Now, I love having this little Bible because it's a reminder to me that my grandfather went to church every Sunday. And he sung hymns each and every week, often with tears in his eyes. And he leaned on Jesus through all the ups and downs of his life, and there were many and he passed on his faith to his children, including my mother, who passed it on to me. So I really treasure this 
this little physical piece of his faith. It's a tangible reminder to me of everything that's been handed on to me. And, and when I hold on to this little New Testament that was his, I hold in my hand the truth of that line we just heard from Psalm 145. One generation shall lodge your works to another and shall, de- shall declare your mighty acts. Thanks, Grandpa. Now, Psalm 145 is probably not one to which you have paid a lot of attention. But it's a lovely song of praise to God. It's part of this group of psalms that we have at the end of the book that are doxological in nature. They talk about praise to God. And scholar Nancy DeClasse Walford tells us that some suggest the book of Psalms actually ended here with Psalm 145, and that later on the last five Psalms were just added as an extension of the last verse of 145, which says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Just like Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 34 that we considered about six weeks ago, you might remember Psalm 145 as an acrostic. It's an acrostic poem, which means each verse in the, in the psalm begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 begins with Aleph, and verse 2 begins with Bet, and so on. Acrostics were written most likely to help people memorize them, right? To help them uh, be repeated as, as poems or as songs. And it was a way to literally summarize everything that could be said about a particular subject, from Aleph to Tav, or as we would say, from A to Z. Even more than that, an acrostic poem taking the entire alphabet, it's a way to sort of take the source of all words and marshal them in praise to God. The other important thing to know about this psalm is that, like many in the latter part of the book of Psalms, is attributed to David, to King David. It's, remember, King David is remembered as the greatest king in all of Israel because of his great faithfulness to God. That's what made him great, was his faithfulness to God. So Psalm 145 was probably written at a time when Israel did not have a king, Probably was not actually written by David, but they remember David as they write and as they sing the psalm. It was a moment when Israel, they had been invaded by a foreign army and their leaders had all been taken off to exile. And then they were brought back and they were able to rebuild the temple, but they didn't have their own government. So the people who were singing Psalm 145, they did not have a king. Instead, they looked to a past generation to a moment when they could draw on strength and faith of a king of the past. They took that faith of the past, that king of the past, they took his faith and they used it to strengthen their own faith. So this psalm testifies to the God that King David knew, and they use that as a way to strengthen and encourage themselves in the present, a way to help them see the goodness of God in the past, in the present, and carry that forward into the future. One generation shall lodge your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts. Counting on the faith of generations past, that's not just about nostalgia. It's about claiming the strengths of our heritage. It's about using the tools we have that have been forged by time and experience, tools for the present, and tools we can pass on to the future. It's about claiming what is tried and true and relying on it. Now, I suspect that there are some of you here who have received a very strong heritage of faith from your immediate family like I did. We had testimony to that already today from the Hughes's and from Michelle Keller. 
When you think about one generation praising God's works to another, you think about your own parents and your own grandparents. But I also suspect that there are those worshiping with us today who don't have a strong family history of faith. Maybe you came to know Jesus because of your spouse, or because of a friend in high school who took a youth group, or a college roommate who took you to campus ministry. Maybe you stumbled into church for the first time when your life had turned upside down and you were looking for any kind of help and you found it in friends who loved you as they loved God. It doesn't matter exactly who shared the way of Jesus with us, a parent or a friend or some preacher who caught our attention. That, that person that shared Jesus with us learned the goodness of God from a generation before them, who learned it from a generation before them, who learned it from a generation before them, all the way back to the disciples who learned it from Jesus. This idea of passing on our faith from one generation to the next, it's essential to who we are as a Christian family. And that is part of the reason why we cherish the tradition of the church as much as we do. It's the faith of the ancestors that gave us the Apostles' Creed and gave us the doxology that we're going to sing in a few minutes. They gave us the great hymns of the church. They gave us the celebrations like Christmas and Easter. Did you know there are no instructions about how to do Christmas or Easter in the Bible? Let alone Advent or Lent or any of the other special days that mark our worshiping year. We have been given those by previous generations of Christians as a way to help us celebrate the goodness and the love of God. And they are precious tools for us to help tell the story of Jesus and experience anew each year the saving love of God. We, of course, here at St. Paul's, we have even more specific ancestors to thank for our Methodist way of being in the world for our emphasis on grace, for our open communion table, for our strong tradition of reaching out in service to others, for the way our churches are linked around the world, for our emphasis on education, for our desire to see our faith lived out in practical acts of charity and love, for the amazing hymns of John Wesley like we sung today, all, or Charles, sorry, oh sorry, that was Charles Wesley's hymns, all that comes to us from John Wesley, his brother, and successive generations of Methodist disciples who helped form who we are as a church. And then there are the generations of saints who built this particular congregation, the people who founded St. Paul's over 160 years ago, before Papillion was even a town. For generation after generation, they shared the story of Jesus, Jesus who saves us, of a God who loves us without end, of a spirit who empowers us for mission. And they built a church that's now going into its 17th decade. You remember our mission statement in St. Paul's, how it starts out, generations of disciples. It describes who we are and why we're here. And when we say that, generations of disciples, we mean everything that I've just mentioned. Our own family who passed on the faith to us. Our ancestors at St. Paul's who built this building. Our Methodist ancestors who gave us the Wesleyan way of following Jesus. And the great Christian tradition that's been handed to us over these 2,000 years. Generations of disciples. There's such strength in that phrase. Such power in that phrase. Such faithfulness in that phrase. But that's not the end of it. At least I pray it's not. 
Because faith to be alive can't just be something about the past. It has to be about now. And it has to have its eye always to the future. Remember my grandfather's Bible. It really means something powerful to me because I too love the Bible. And I don't just love it because he loved it. I love it because I have read it and discovered it to be a powerful book. I have read it and it has sung to me of the goodness of God. I have read it and have learned there about a savior who was willing to give his very life for my sake. And I have read the Bible and I have heard Jesus' own call to discipleship and service. I have found God in the pages of the scripture. And so when I hold up my grandfather's Bible, it's not just to me an old dusty book. I understand what it meant to him because I know what it means to me. So transmitting the faith from generation to generation, it's not just about passing on artifacts, it's about nurturing faith in the next generation. So we wanna make sure that people who are new to St. Paul's as well as our own youth and children have an active, have a living faith. Not just that they know the rituals of what we do here, but that they know the God for whom we do it. We don't just want them to know the songs and the stories as some kind of family tradition. We want them to know the God to whom we sing and to have their own stories and that they add to ours about how God has changed their life. We don't just want them to sing praise to God in a way that was, as my grandma used to say. We want them to sing praise to God because of the love they have for God in their own hearts. Which means which means we have to let them know how deeply Jesus has affected our lives. We have to tell them the stories of our faith. We have to pray with them and tell them about the moments when prayer changed us. We have to serve with them and tell them that we're doing it because Jesus asked his followers to serve like he served. We have to give generously and tell our children we do it because God has given us so much and we want to do good in God's name. We have to live our faith out loud in front of our children so that they become the next generation with an active, vital faith that can then be passed on far beyond us. Now, will their faith look exactly the same as ours? Of course not. They're going to sing different songs, they're going to pray different prayers, and they're going to let traditions, even the cherished ones, change. At a previous church I served, I remember having a conversation with a woman who used to be in charge of this giant Advent service called Hanging of the Greens. It happened at the very first of December and it was a highlight of the church here. Big deal, big party. The sanctuary was always packed and everyone was jostling to have a part to play in decorating for Christmas. At least that's what she told me it used to be like. <laughs> The service had not been a big to-do for probably like 15 years before I showed up as pastor. But this woman was still longing for the good old days when it meant so much to the whole church. And she was lamenting to me about why the new young mothers of the church did not do the same work she used to do in order to make it all happen. And I tried to tell her as gently as I could that hanging of the greens was not an essential part of the Christian faith. 
And if the current generation wanted to spend their time investing in other things, that was okay and did not mean the church was falling apart. And I was pretty sure Christmas was going to happen anyway, no matter how decorated the sanctuary got. I don't think she believed me. Now, the biggest problem she had was her eyes were on the wrong thing. She was asking the question, why is the next generation not doing faith exactly the way I did it? The better question for us is, do the people who come after me, do they love God? And do they know the power that God has to forgive and make all things new? And do they trust Jesus And do they understand how he can help them every single day? Have they heard his call to service? And do they see a place for him, for them to make a difference in the world? And if we can say yes to all those things, then we have indeed, as one generation, lauded the works of God to another. We have passed on the faith, and the rest of the traditions will come and go. In the week ahead, I want to encourage you to think about where you can encourage the next generations of followers of Jesus. This might be in your own family, talking with your kids about what it means to trust Jesus or praying with your grandkids. But it doesn't have to be inside your own family. It could be you decide to take someone who's 20 years younger to you out to lunch and you ask them the bold question, what are you praying about lately? It could mean writing a note to someone here at St. Paul's who's younger than you, who you've seen do something great, like an adult that you've seen starting to volunteer, or a youth in our confirmation class, or a kid who sang in the kids' choir last week. Send them a note saying, I see the love of God in you, and I'm praying for you. When we pass on our faith from one generation to the next, we honor those who nurture the faith in us. We honor God who gave us this great gift of a huge Christian family. Thanks be to God. Amen.